Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Welcome to another episode of Life, Death, and the Law. I hope your weekend was well and that things happened that um, didn't. maybe you didn't go to jail. I don't know. Uh, that would be a good weekend for Cody, at least. Cody's in the studio today pushing buttons, and, and uh, you stayed out of jail this week? I didn't give you a call. No, that's yeah, right. So, I mean, you are on my speed dial as the attorney, yeah. We got Sean here, uh, my partner in crime here at the law firm. We just got back from Phoenix last Friday, Sean, you and I, and we had to give a presentation in front of a ton of attorneys. Why they asked us? I don't know, but uh, we showed up and we we brought it's, it's down the house. Diversity working in our favor. <laughs> okay, we we are the outcasts of the state of Arizona, and they wanted to throw <laughs> us a bone, and so here we are. We were presenting, and they get to check that off their little uh, virtue signaling list. In reality, what happened was Sean and I both serve on separate uh, boards within the state bar of Arizona. When we use that word state bar, what that means is all these licensed attorneys that are running around and trying to get your business. Um, we practice exclusively in the area of estate planning, and you probably know that as you hear our commercials and you see our billboards around town as you listen to us on this radio show. But at the same time, um, we we get into a lot of different things like real estate transactions and business entities and, and things like that. Well, the bar reached out to Sean and asked that we we go present to all attorneys in the state of Arizona on this subject of estate planning, the basics, so that any other attorney out there that might not be in this area, for example, maybe they're practicing in bankruptcy or maybe they're doing, uh, you know, I don't know, they're ambulance chasers or something like that. We want them to know the basics of estate planning in the event that they have a client come in and they can see at least some issues that might jump up. And, uh, to them and, and they can actually address those or at least know where they need to go to find the answers to some of those issues that are going around. So the bar asked Sean and I to present, which is their endorsed version for the state of Arizona. So what I'm trying to say is it's pretty big deal. Yeah, okay. We're a pretty big deal. Well, no, and it, it was a great opportunity. Um, it was a little bit, so um, as a prep to make sure that we stayed on topic, they sent us the course that was previously done in 2019, and it was done by uh, Darren Case and uh, Brent Nelson and, and TJ Ryan, all of which have authored the books that we have on our shelf for estate planning that every attorney has on their shelf. So we're like, oh yeah, that, that's not a tough act to follow. So yeah, we went up to Arizona, and sometimes, do you feel like you stick out kind of like a sore thumb when you're mingling among the other attorneys from Tucson and Phoenix as if their politics don't quite jive with uh, what we do, we subscribe to on this show. Probably. I try not to mingle with the other attorneys, to be honest. Uh-huh. I try but to keep my distance. The interesting thing is as soon as we get into the legal aspects of it, um, the practices that we have here that we implement in this law firm – feel like they are head and shoulders above as far as technology and the efficiency than the firms, even these large um, skyrise firms. And I think that attorneys in general are just behind the curve when it comes to technology. And we really love technology, especially you, Adam. You were really diving into when Google Drive came out with all the opportunities to um, automate our systems here in the office. You were right on top of that. And now with AI... I see you in your office every day between clients working on how to automate our systems better. So 
it's been fun to see how that grows and and makes our practice even more efficient. Yeah, I'm surprised. You know, it, when it comes to attorneys, I feel like you go through this whole experience of law school, which in itself is taxing and very difficult. And I think a lot of individuals that go through that process come out of law school with this idea that, okay, I've, I've gone through law school. Now I need to pass a bar exam. Once they pass a bar exam, they're like, okay, I'm ready for the money to come in or all these clients to be knocking down my door. Oh, we absolutely thought that's what it was. In fact, Brittany and I had already picked out um, that we were going to have a Jaguar, a brand new Jaguar <laughs> delivered to our front porch. <laughs> that's the one you picked, the Jaguar? Hey, back in 2008, it was a very cool car. And uh, so they still are, but I mean, it's like I hear the word Jaguar, I get worried. Well, it's because you have an old Jaguar that's broken down, it runs really well, actually. Does it? Yeah, I'm offended you said that. Okay, sorry. Anyway, we thought thought when we got that ticket stamped, when we got that law degree, it was just our license to print money, and um, reality was a bit different. Yeah, what they don't teach you in law school is that you actually have to go out and make an effort to market to people and to say, hey, we're better than the next guy down the street or the next gal down the street, and, and this is why. And then they tell you you can't hang out in the emergency room. It's like, what's that all about? Yeah, and uh, so there's, it's this double standard, <laughs> if you will. It's like you're you're uh, hobbling our, our legs here. But uh, it, it doesn't just happen, and it takes a little bit of business acumen, if you will. And, Sean, you've been masterful in that, I, I, would, I would say. Sean is one that never stops learning, and that – pushes me to try and do the same. So he's always reading uh, the next self-help book, if you want to call me. That sounds derogatory. It's not a derogatory. It's true. It's not. But Hey, it's an ego booster. Why? Because I feel like I'm developing myself and I'm learning, regardless of whether or not I implement all the things that I (laughs) learn. (laughs) But it has come in handy. I mean, our lifestyle has been... I, I enjoy my lifestyle. I love coming to work every day, and that's something that um, not a lot of people can actually say. And um, and that's partly because of what Sean implements, or he said he'll read something. And he says, "Adam, you should look into this," or "This is what I found," and I think we should try this in our office and see how it works with the employees. And and um, if it doesn't work, we just keep moving along. You know, there's different, and that's what I love about Sean's uh, personality is it's let's try it. Let's just get in there and start doing it. If it doesn't work, then we ditch it. We try something else. So you just it's it's not being married to a certain thing for too long. It's uh, always constantly changing, which keeps us on our toes, but it also keeps us evolving very quickly. And that that is a, that was a concept that was taught in one of those self help books. Yeah, well, and I think our clients feel it when they walk into the office. Um, I've heard lots of comments lately that the welcoming room is is one of the most comfortable. Um, it's not plush, but it's it's very nice, and it's 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 an easy place to be and feel a little bit less anxiety as you wait for your appointment to start. Of course, we try to start all of our appointments on time, but if a lot of our clients are retired and sometimes show up an hour early, and we have a nice place for them to wait. And if they give comments on that, then we try to implement them. For example, we um, put in a big screen TV. I don't know, like ten years ago. And we wanted some entertainment going on. And we were playing like movies like Minority Report and <laughs> things like that. I thought, um, yeah, we were getting comments on that that weren't uh, really positive. So now we've got scenery or a fish tank, you know, in the background. Anything, and these things seem simple, but we, we really do want to hear our clients' feedback. 
And um, most of the time, the biggest feedback that I appreciate is when our clients leave, they feel like a weight has been lifted off their shoulders. They feel lighter on their feet because not just we you know, lighten their wallet, but that they are more confident that their affairs are in order. So what we want to do on this episode is go over some of the things that we actually talked to the, the attorneys for the state of Arizona about. And these are very simple concepts that we deal with every day. And they come about because on a given day, Sean and I will see, you know, eight different families um, between the both of us. And then there's other families coming in for different things. So our office on one given day is going to see probably close to 12 to, you know, 16 different families coming in and out doing different things throughout the course of the day. And each one of those families is unique. Each one of those families has needs that are goal is to meet those needs. Now, we can't help them do things that are illegal, but we can help them avoid court. That's the goal is help avoid squabbles between family members or disputes. And we want to help them avoid as much as possible any taxation that might arise because of their passing away or becoming incapacitated. So those are three primary goals is helping families avoid those negative issues that might arise. And we we do it in certain ways, and it really depends on that particular family, what they have, what they're trying to accomplish, what the family dynamics are. So I can't, I can't go into a room, and if somebody says, Adam, I just want a simple estate plan, that doesn't mean anything to me because I need to know more information. I need to know about your family dynamics. Are there any fighters out there? Are there any issues that we need to address that you haven't even thought of, but I've seen through experience could become an issue? And that doesn't mean that uh, it's the end of the world. It's just we need to identify these issues up front. Once we know what those issues are, now we can address them preemptively and avoid any conflicts or issues that might come down the line because we already we already were aware of these issues. And so it takes me getting to know the client and Sean, getting to know that individual family and and finding these issues right up front, and then we can address them with legal planning. Thus protecting their family and generations to come is the goal. And uh, so that's what we talked to the Arizona State Bar about, all those attorneys that are licensed in the state of Arizona with the basic concepts of when a client comes to you and you see this, that, or the other, these are some tactics that you can use to protect that person or that family. Yeah, and it's back to the basics. Um, We have plenty of continuing education courses from other attorneys that talk about complex estate planning for multi-millionaires or even billionaire clients. And those are interesting topics for attorneys, you know, to kind of, you know, sit down and huddle about. But in reality, the 99% of the population, they have an estate between, you know, 200,000 and say 2 million. And 2 million might sound astronomical, but when you start putting together life insurance and the equity in your home and the vehicles that you have or a small business, it can get there pretty quickly. And so that's the majority of our clients that come in the door. And what we deal with, I, I enjoy a client that has got a healthy level of skepticism that comes in my office and is not afraid to say, well, why don't I just do this? And, and, and as long as he's got an open mind about it, then he's great. If he's coming in just to challenge every piece of advice that I'm offering, that's different. But one thing that comes up quite often is, why don't I hold everything just in joint tenancy or name a beneficiary on each of my assets? And then I don't really need an estate plan. So that's what we did for this presentation as we walked through that. Joint tenancy 
is going to have a different application for every different type of asset. For example, um, a joint tenancy with real estate is not actually the default manner in how you hold real estate. A lot of people think it is. When you buy a, a house together, say um, you're moving in with um, your girlfriend and you buy a house, that's, that's pretty common now, then you might think that it's joint tenancy. So if she passes away, you'd own the house automatically. But unless you actually put express language in the deed itself that says this is joint tenants with right of survivorship, then it's not. And what happens is when she passes away, her share is actually going to go to her heirs, which you are not one of. You are not a legal heir just because you live with her. And um, it'll go down to either, if she has kids, it'll go to her kids. If she's got um, parents that are living, it'll go to them or her siblings. So that that's an issue. you got to make sure that it says joint tenants, and then the house will go um, to the survivor of, of the owner of the house. With bank accounts, it's different. If you make somebody a joint owner on the bank account or you add somebody to the bank account, the default for the bank is to name that person jointly on the account as an owner. And you may be just naming your son or your daughter and only naming them because you want them to have the ability to write checks in case you're incapacitated. But the bank's default is to name them as a joint owner, and you cannot remove them. And that's, that's a big difference between real estate, whereas you can break that joint tenancy just by either recording an uh, affidavit that you would like to break up the joint tenancy or by conveying your half of the property to somebody else. Most people do not want to go through court intervention. That's, that's really what we're looking as attorneys in this area to, to avoid is court intervention. And it comes in really two different ways when it when it happens, it's going to be either you're alive, but incapacitated. What that means is that you can't go to the bank because maybe physically you're unable or maybe mentally you've lost your marbles and you just can't do things on your own behalf financially or maybe in the healthcare world as well. And so when that happens to an individual, there is a court process for that. We call that guardianship to deal with uh, the person's um, health decision-making. And then we've got conservatorship through the, the court system as well, which allows for a person to come in and manage your finances. Both of those proceedings take a lot of time, a lot of effort. They are expensive, and we, we would rather not go that route. And there are ways to avoid that if done ahead of time. And so what we do as attorneys in this area is we try and help families identify those things and get planning in place ahead of time so they can avoid a possible guardianship or conservatorship action in court down the road when when you become incapacitated. The other way that you can go through court is you pass away and you have things still titled in your name. And the court system for that is called probate. That's the the name that you've probably heard out there and it's got a negative connotation because it is not fun to be in a probate matter. Is it the end of the world? It's not the end of the world if you know what you're doing, but it's not the first thing I'd want to do. It's like kind of going to the dentist. It's like, you know, you have to, but I don't want to. Yeah, you prefer to prevent it by brushing and flossing. Yeah, you'd want to brush your teeth so you don't go to the dentist. It's the same with probate. You you It would be best that the family members or the people you leave behind not go through that process, if possible, if you can avoid that. And you can if you do planning ahead of time. So probate is the process of changing title from the dead person's name over to the beneficiary's names. Um, and those beneficiaries are going to be either set in stone by the state statutes 
by default, or you can say who you want your stuff to go to ahead of time using a will or some other testamentary document. So those are the two, two primary things that we're trying to avoid guardianship and conservatorship while you're alive, but incapacitated. And when you pass away, we don't want to go back to the court system to transfer title of your stuff over to family members because it's just, again, you're dealing with the court system. So you're on their timeline. There's going to be possible delays. It's going to be public, meaning uh, you and I can go down to the courtroom and we can sit in on these probate matters and hear all the hubbub and the, the fun things that are going on in the family. And uh, not only that, but it's expensive. It can get up there. If there's fighting involved, it really gets expensive between beneficiaries and family members. So we're trying to avoid all that. And Sean mentioned one way that you can do that, and that is using beneficiary um, designations, at least for probate. But that really doesn't work for guardianship conservatorship. Why? Because you're not dead yet. Uh, Yeah. that, That is an issue that comes up a lot. Why would I need a estate plan if I've got a son or daughter as a beneficiary designated on my on my bank account. And even those who are a little bit more savvy understand they can do it with their house and their car as well. So why would I want an estate plan that I'm going to have to spend a lot of money at an attorney's office? And they, they don't understand what the difference is. And when we see the everyday scenario, as you said, we see about 16 appointments a day, not us individually as attorneys. We've got a great staff that surrounds us. Um, that helps see our clients and helps them walk them through the, the different um, phases of incapacity and death that our clients encounter. But um, the reason why is because people become incapacitated. Most people will go through a period of two years of incapacity before they die. We got to go to break, but we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more of what our options are, your basic options um, to put something in place if you haven't already. And if you have, then it's probably time to Pull that out, dust it off, and um, look it over and see if it's doing what you want it to do. But we'll be right back. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner & Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. We're talking about estate planning and specifically the easy options for passing assets down to the next generation or intended beneficiaries, like holding assets jointly as joint tenancy or naming beneficiaries. And when people come in and talk to us, oftentimes they've done that. They've thought in advance and they they want reassurance from us that what they've done is correct. And maybe if they've got a few loose ends out there, then then we can wrap those up and they can sleep well at night. And really they do... We know that there's something nagging them in the back of their mind saying, I I probably, there's something I'm missing, but I don't know what it is. And uh, my favorite phrase when somebody comes in to talk to me is, I have a very simple estate plan or I already have everything arranged. I just need this simple thing. It should be quick and easy and I'll be out of your hair. Adam, do you ever get those types? Yeah, I get them all the time. Um, And it's like, well, what about this son that you haven't talked to for a long time? Or what about this one that's been, you know, using drugs and things like that? Do you want them to be making your decisions? And, oh, no, 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 I don't want that. Oh, well, okay, it's not as simple as you thought, was it? (laughs) I don't say that. How often do you get clients that are on a second relationship, second marriage? Oh, my gosh, all the time. Probably 70% of my, my families that I meet with probably are on the second or third, fourth marriage, just because late in life, you know, maybe a spouse has passed away or through a divorce or whatever, they're 
they're meeting another person, they're going on with that person. Oftentimes, what throws a big wrench into things is um, both of them having their own separate kids. Yeah, and and the diversity that exists between their estates. So let me pose a scenario for you. You've got um, wife here that comes in with a million dollar retirement and a house and husband that comes in with a Harley and a car and five grand in his bank account and a $10,000 credit card bill. So it's, it's, there's a big separation between their net worth and they love each other. They want to leave everything to one another to be cared for, but they each have their own children. So if wife names husband as a primary beneficiary on her retirement account, and then has a joint house or owns a joint tenancy with right of survivorship with her husband, then she passes away, and then he passes away a year later, what's the outcome of her legacy? Yeah, so all, I've seen this happen a few times, and uh, it goes to the that surviving husband, in this case, all of his family, right? And, so her uh, kids are essentially disinherited. Yeah, he because she dies first, so everything goes to the husband in the scenario that she presented. And then once he dies, it goes to his family, his his kids. And so all of that stuff that she worked for and built during that most of her life now goes to this other guy's kids and not none of her family members, which would be tragic. And I see that from time to time. It's it's a, an unintended result that people don't think about. A lot of people also come in and say, well, we've heard this number 600,000. And if we don't have an estate over 600,000, then we don't have to go through probate. And we talked about this in a previous episode, but 600000 was the number that was a threshold for an estate tax exemption back in the 90s. had nothing to do with probate. Probate is anything that's titled in your name has got to go through some form of probate with some exceptions, the small state affidavits. So what would those exceptions be for real estate, for personal property, as far as value of assets? So in Arizona, if we're going to do a small state transfer of assets like that, the thresholds are, it's a two-pronged test. You have to have less than $100,000 of real estate equity. That means the property might be worth $250,000, but you have a mortgage for $200,000. So your equity in that would be $50,000. When you add all the real estate equity up, it has to be less than $100,000. And then in addition to that, you have to have less than $75,000 worth of stuff that's not real estate. That could be accounts. It, it can, it's anything. that's not real estate. When you add the value up, the Harley, the, the diamond ring, you know, all this stuff added up in a, into a pot that's not real estate. If that is under $75,000 and you qualify for a small estate transfer method. But there are some issues with that as well that we see all the time. So one option is to go through probate. And the other option that has been carved out in the statutes to allow people a little easier process through the court system is the small state affidavit process. But um, what's some pros and cons of going through the small estate affidavit as opposed to probate? If you're going to go through the small, the thing about a small state affidavit is nobody's really watching in most cases, meaning I could be a, a beneficiary that has bad intent, and there might be other beneficiaries out there, but I could go in and say that I'm the sole beneficiary to a bank, for example, with this small state affidavit. An affidavit is a signed document saying that I'm swearing under penalty of perjury um, and penalties, criminal penalties, that what I'm telling you is the truth. And what you have to say is I meet these thresholds. 
of a hundred thousand dollars or less in real estate and I meet and the and this estate meets the thresholds of seventy five thousand dollars or less of personal property and I'm I'm a beneficiary because I'm the son or the daughter for whatever reason I'm I'm a, an entitled beneficiary. So you're swearing to all this stuff and when you present that to the bank, the bank has to look at this document and determine, okay, is this true? I, you know, they're kind of going to go by your word because you're swearing to that. But that is that is fraught with fraud. You know, in some cases, I've seen cases where people will transfer real estate, for example, um, into their own sole name when really there were other siblings that were entitled to that as well. Or but, they'll think just because one of their siblings passed away that they're by right of survivorship, they, they get it. Whereas in fact, the siblings had kids, they had nephews and nieces. Yeah. And, and so under the law, it would go to those nieces and nephews, at least a proportion of that. So it's fraught with fraud, number one, or ignorance as yeah, well. You know, I think that plays a big part of it. Ignorance or fraud. One of those optimistic two. ignorance. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it, sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, if you were to go into Wells Fargo with a small state affidavit, they could reject that and say, no, we're not going to accept this. For we'll good come reason. Ba- they're, they're concerned about liability about the other kid coming out of the woodwork. And if it's going to be real estate, another issue that we often see is down the line, if you go to sell that property, oftentimes title companies aren't really happy with small state affidavit transfers. Not all the time, but sometimes they say, hey, we would like you to do a probate to clear title of this particular real estate um, holding so that uh, we can insure it uh, and insure t- the title, and we feel better about that, which could then lock up that property and it can't be sold. If it's in the middle of a transaction, we get calls like this all the time where individuals are, they've got a buyer, they've gone through the, the purchase contract uh, for this piece of real estate, and then they have to put the brakes on because the title company says, well, you don't have clear title to sell this. And now we have to sit there and wait because we got to go through some sort of a process judicial or otherwise, to clear title of that property. And and the clients are always like, well, we need it done because the closing is next week. And it's, well, well, that's not going to happen. Okay. I mean, if that if we're to this point, most likely we've got to now do some things to clear title in most cases. I mean, we, we go as fast as we can, but the court can do whatever the court does. And you're on their timetable a lot of times. And so it can be difficult when, when going through this route of trying to use a small state affidavit. I would prefer, and I think, Sean, you agree with me, for clarity sake and for a, a kind of an oversight of what's going on after a person dies, you most likely would want to go through a probate matter just to make sure that the people that are appointed to be in charge of this matter are going to be the ones that are supposed to be in charge of it. And they've got this stamp from the court that the banks really like to see, the title companies really like to see. It gives them this warm, comfort feeling that, this, the court is sanctioning this action. So that we've talked about small state affidavit methods of transfer. They work in some cases. Sometimes they've got their own um, quirks that you got to work out, uh, and sometimes they don't work. I mean, if if you're over those thresholds, and a lot of times people are just because of real estate alone, they might have bought a house way back. I met with a, a client last week where they bought a house back in the, the 60s for like, I think it was... $30,000. And now the houses around them are selling for $380,000. So they bought it for $30,000 back in the 60s. And now it's a accrued value such that if they were to die, and they don't have a mortgage because they bought it so long ago that um, they paid off the mortgage a long time ago. So if they were to die, 
there's no mortgage on that property. And that property, even though they bought it for $30,000 back in the 60s, when they die, it's worth $380,000. That's going to have to go through a probate matter because it's over the $100,000 limit that you're allowed um, to go through a small state transfer. So that happens all the time. Well, what about this case? So say they want to, they, they understand that, they see that um, down in the horizon as an issue. So they say, okay, we'll, we'll just use, we've heard of this thing called a beneficiary deed or transfer on death deed. And um, that's what it's called in other states. It's a beneficiary deed in Arizona. But uh, so why don't we just use this magical instrument that we can record doesn't convey property when we record the deed, but upon our death, poof, our kids get it. And we've got five kids. They happen to be very, um, well, various degrees of success around the nation. Why don't we just use that? A lot of times, in my opinion, beneficiary deeds, they work really well if, if it's a perfect, simple situation like you mentioned before, but nobody really has a perfect, simple situation. Oftentimes, you don't contemplate, or I feel like, when a family comes in and we're talking about these things, they don't contemplate the idea that, hey, one of my kids might die before me. And if I use a beneficiary deed, most of the time, it doesn't do a very good job of saying, well, what happens if this person dies? Does it go down to their kids, that share that they would have had? Or does it go back to the others that are listed on that beneficiary deed? It's very, very um, simple in its, in its administration. And it can't be as co- uh, complex as it might need to be in, in a lot of cases. Another example would be, what if that beneficiary is a minor? What if that beneficiary has special needs? A beneficiary deed is going gonna, is gonna to cause a, a probate action that could have been avoided if you used the right legal tools ahead of time and contemplated those things. Even with the five kids that are in different states, if you've got two beneficiaries our rule of thumb is you multiply the complexity of administering that by two. You get three, now it's exponentially more difficult because all three are going to have to agree on how to take title to the house and what to do with it, whether they're going to rent it, whether they're going to sell it, how much they're going to sell it for. You got four, now it's really getting complicated. You get five, it's nearly impossible. And you don't have one designated individual to control the transactions. All five have equal authority and priority to deal with this piece of real estate. They've got to sign the affidavit together. They've got to have it filed in the courthouse. And then they've got to deal with how it's going to be sold. And so if any one of them wants to hold up the process just because they're being stubborn or because they have some other grandiose idea for the property, maybe they want to live in the property, but they don't want to cough up the money to pay the others off, that's going to hold up the whole process. Whereas a probate, you're going to have a personal representative that gets to make an executive decision as to what to do with the property, and it's going to be done. There are better options in probate, but those are some of the pitfalls of a beneficiary deed and and some of the benefits of probate in comparison. So a lot of people will say, well, that's easy. We'll just put that trusted person, that trusted daughter or son on our property title right now. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that in just a minute and some of the pitfalls there. We'll be right back after this. Coming up, more thought-provoking conversations on life, death, and the law right after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner & Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back to Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner, attorney with Deason, Garner & Hanson. Uh, We recently came back from teaching a course for attorneys specifically about estate planning in Phoenix. 
And uh, if you want to, to watch that course, you can go on and to the State Bar site. But if you want to watch us live and, and it be uh, much more catered to what you might want to hear, then we have some seminars coming up. There's one coming up on uh, Tuesday. It's at the Yuma Main Library, 10.30 a.m. That is the 22nd of August. So go ahead and call our office and RSVP for that. We have been um, running out of seats, so please RSVP in advance, and so you'll reserve a seat and make sure that you've got a spot. We also have one on Friday. It's at the Foothills Library, also at 10.30 a.m. That is August 25th. So either of those times, you can call our number. It's 928-783-4575 and reserve a place, or just go to our website, yuma.law, and you can reserve your seat there. That brings up another thing about our website. If you have missed one of these episodes and you want to you wanna go back or listen to something, for example, just go to our website. All of these episodes have been uploaded. And uh, another thing you could do is you, call, you can also subscribe to, uh, on your favorite po- podcast app, our, our show, Life, Death, and the Law. You can do that on Google Play. You can do it on the Apple um, iTunes. And so... You can listen to our past episodes if you missed something or if you want to go back and review something that we said, and we encourage you to do that. Before the break, I I brought up an issue that we often, or not so much an issue, but a solution that we often hear in our office from clients, and they'll say something like, well, we were really thinking about just putting on, or we already have put on our trusted daughter or son on the deed to our property, because if something happens to us, we, we want them to control everything and, and sell that property and then divide it among themselves and their siblings. And um, we trust them to do that. So we put them on our deed now so we don't have to worry about it later and they don't have to worry about probate. Any issues with that, Sean? Yeah. So, so many red flags pop up when you say that. Number one, um, oftentimes parents don't understand the difficulties that their kids are going to go through. The number one liability in America uh, is divorce. And so if you name your child on that property and a divorce comes up, they got title to the property while they were married, that property is going to be in the mix somehow. Whether or not ultimately the spouse that's divorcing your child is is going to get title to it is another question, but it's going to mix it up. Another thing is if the child's going through some other financial difficulties like, uh, you know, credit card debt or a bad business deal or gets in a car accident, all of those liabilities, if they're jointly named on the title to your house, now those liabilities can attach to your house. Then there's tax issues that can be implied as well. When Right now, it's, it's a really good tax law that when an individual passes away, their heirs get a step up in basis for the inheritance that they receive in the real estate and oftentimes in stock and other accounts. Not qualified accounts, meaning tax-deferred accounts, but um, other appreciated assets. Now, that step-up in basis means the amount that the person paid for it, that's the basis. And so if they paid $100,000 for the house, or in your your scenario, Adam, where they paid, what was it, $30,000 right. for the house, and now it's worth $250,000? $380,000. Oh, $380,000. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's a $350,000 gain. So if they gave that house in advance, 
then they could lose that step up in basis, meaning if the house is turned around and sold, then all of that gain is capital gains and they'd have to pay taxes on it. Whereas if they would have just let the child inherit it, either through the beneficiary deed or probate or even better yet, a trust, then they would receive a step up in basis, meaning the child it's as if the child purchased the house but without money for the fair market value at the date of their parents' death. So it's as if they purchased it for $380,000. So if they turn around and sell it for $380,000, there is no gain under the, the tax law and no taxes. So it's going to accomplish the same thing, but it gonna, uh, it's going to avoid a lot of tax liability there. Absolutely. And that's one thing that a lot of uh, our clients will do is they'll put son or daughter on their account or on their uh, their property or on their accounts. And it's very similar when it comes to a bank account. And another thing that comes up is you're really trusting that individual. And I say that with complete confidence that you can trust that individual. But unfortunately, in our line of work, we often see that things change when you pass away. And that individual that you trusted so much to do something um, had a different perspective on or or an understanding that's maybe different than yours. A good example of that would be putting somebody onto your bank account or onto your your deed with the intention of them splitting that among other people when when you pass away. They don't have to and legally they would be giving a gift yeah for tax purposes to other people if they were to do that which could affect them negatively tax-wise. Number 1, number 2, they could tell the other people that maybe think that they're getting a piece or mom and dad had always said, Hey, you guys are going to split this up, but, but Susie's going to do that. You know, we put her on the deed and she's going to split this up once we pass away. And then they pass away. Even if they did that verbally, nothing's in writing. And Susie, Susan can keep that property. She doesn't have to divide it up because she's on the deed. It's joint tenants with writer survivorship. Or if she's on a bank account, she doesn't have to split the bank account. She can keep it all herself. She doesn't have to split it. And the other kids will not have any remedy. Um, I mean, they could try, but it's not going to be successful most likely. It'd be very difficult to win that in in a courtroom. I mean, best case scenario, yeah, the court rules that it was some type of intended trust, de facto trust. But the family, if they're going to court to get that resolved, they're not talking to each other anymore. Yeah, and it's going to be very expensive. It's going to be, you know it's probably going to eat all the value up that would have been there. So all that can be avoided if you just do do something ahead of time to avoid those issues. Another thing that you have to consider is the individual that you're giving it to, they might be a straight arrow, but you can't anticipate what's going to go on in their life, right? Uh, people get involved with their life, whether it's bad business partners or, you know, even a spouse that can make things go awry very quickly. And so it can it can really throw a wrench into your plans. If the spouse is influencing your son or daughter as to how they're going to handle that property, that can really put a strain on their relationship or your family. And and then it puts your your child in a really tough situation. Do I follow my spouse's advice or do I follow my mom's intentions with my family? And it also can um, run into other issues. If that person becomes sick and, uh, now somebody is handling their affairs through their planning, a power of attorney. 
a power of attorney has a legal obligation to do what's the best interest for that person. They can't just give that person's property away. So whereas the person individually might have followed mom's wishes, the power of attorney cannot legally. They have to ethically follow what's in the best interest of the individual. And if they're coming into an attorney to get advice to make sure that they're not going to be um, subject to any liability for how they're managing the assets of the, the principal of this power of attorney, then the attorney is going to say, you cannot give this property away. You don't, you don't have that authority. You have to use it for the benefit of this person. So when you're naming their child on the title to your house or whatever it is, bank account or anything else, keep in mind your child's mortal. They, a lot of things can happen to them as far as their health, and they live in an imperfect world where they're going to be influenced by other people around them. Absolutely. So how do you avoid all this? Well, get something done ahead of time and just take the time to do that. We try to make that as easy as possible. If you were to call our office or, or go to our website and set up an appointment, come sit down with us, and we'll go through what your particular family goals are. We'll talk about the dynamics of your family. We'll talk about the things that you have. And then Sean and I will we'll give you some suggestions of what we would advise you to do and some of the ways that you can get that done. Ultimately, you get to choose what you want to do. It's your family. But we'll tell you, okay, if you choose this, this is most likely what's going to happen. If you choose this, this is what's going to happen. Um, and we'll probably make recommendations as well. You know, you probably should choose this route. That'll make it easier for you. And that comes in the form a lot of times of will planning or trust planning, which includes a lot of other things like uh, healthcare um, directives and, and uh, powers of attorney. But all that works together. And sometimes it, it includes like a business entity, you know, if it's going to be complex or something like that. So we can use all sorts of different legal tools to make sure that your family is going to hopefully avoid court and um, s- disputes and retain most of the value that you you end up leaving to them and not going not having to pay attorney's fees and court fees and and time and and effort and stress that's the goal is to avoid that stuff and and using proper planning ahead of time we'll get that done do you get the question right off the bat within five minutes of them sitting down what do you think's the best plan for me <laughs> yeah oftentimes they'll say that they'll come in and they'll say I think I want a trust. And I'll ask, well, what do you know about a trust? Oh, nothing. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. And maybe you do, but I don't know yet. So let's talk about your so, family. So what is the process? Can you give me a brief description, a thumbnail sketch of what the interview looks like and how long it takes? Oh, yeah. I mean, I like to spend at least an hour with families. Sometimes it turns into an hour and a half because we kind of talk about different things, but um, getting to know each other. But, uh, yeah, we spend at least an hour with each other. We talk about your family. We talk about what you have. We talk about what you want to accomplish and who you trust to make decisions, both financially and health-wise. And what happens if that person or those people pass away or become incapacitated themselves? Who's your backup? So I'm going to ask questions like that, and you're going to ask questions like that, Sean. Ultimately, we're going to sketch out an outline that you'll be able to understand. And, And they're navigating this discussion is what I find. Every time I ask them a question, it's going to lead me to another set of questions. But by the time we get to the end of it, it's very obvious what type of estate plan they need. And I'm no longer saying, well, now I think you need this one or that one. They've come to the conclusion themselves by the answers that they've given me to the questions that I've posed. Have you have you noticed that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the goal. You know, I find that psychologically, I mean, we as individuals, we want to be 
invested in the decisions that we make. And uh, if somebody's sitting there and tell me what to do and what decisions I need to make, as we've seen through a lot of this government intervention lately over the last few years, it's not fun for you when you're dictated as to what you have to do and what choices you have to make. So on a personal level, we want to make sure that our clients, our families that are coming in, have that sense of self-direction. They're understanding these concepts on, in a basic way that we're explaining to them and they're choosing. I want to do this, that, or the other. And it's obvious to them because of the issues that we've talked about and, and hammered out. And they, they feel good and confident in what they're doing because they know that this is the right plan for them to accomplish the goals that they want. Typically, I ask about 100 questions. And that sounds like a lot, and that might sound intimidating. And people feel like they're, they're going to be embarrassed by not knowing who they should appoint in certain positions or, or even what assets they have. Do you get that where there's some timidity there about whether or not they're going to have enough answers and have thought through the planning well enough to even come in for an appointment? Absolutely. This brings to mind, uh, we've got to close it up here. But uh, I just want to remind you that are listening, tomorrow we've got our seminar at the Yuma Main Library at 1030. So if you have more questions or questions have popped up in your mind as we're talking, come over to the Yuma Main Library tomorrow at 1030. And Sean and I will be there. We'll be able to answer any questions that you have. We open it up to a question and answer period. Or if you can't make it to that one, you want to wait for our Foothills Library seminar. That'll be this Friday at 1030 out at the Foothills Library as well. That's all the time that we have today. We'll talk to you next week. This is Life, Death, and the Law. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. 